to start tonight, I want to start by asking you all a question. Uh, that question is, what do you want to do with your lives? And really, what I mean by that is, what do you want to do with your lives that makes a lasting impact, that means something, that is worthwhile and meaningful? I believe that to some extent, we really all do want to know that we're leaving this earth and we left something, we left an impact. We, we did something where we know, okay, this wasn't time wasted here on earth. I, I believe that's something that we all want to do. And really, there are a lot of good things we can do with our time. We can, we can be teachers and nurses and engineers and architects. We can be athletes and businessmen and women and even missionaries and ministers. And in all of that, though, there's an aspect where it's not really going to last. But tonight, we're going to look at the Great Commission. If you looked at your notes, you saw we're in Matthew 28. And I believe what this passage gives to us is something that we can do with our lives that makes the greatest impact possible, one that extends into, into eternity. And, and that, that thing is making disciples. That's what we're going to talk about tonight is making disciples. So if you have your Bibles, open them open them up to Matthew 28 or pull out that, that phone app you got and, and go to Matthew 28. And we'll be looking at the last four verses, mostly focusing on 19 and 20, but I want to build the context with 16 through 18 as well. So if you're there in Matthew 28, read, uh, follow along with me as I read this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they, were, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Well, as we look at this passage first, I want to help us build the setting and the context. That's where we're starting in, verses six, in verse 16. Instead of just jumping right into 19, we need to understand what's really going on and set the scene a bit. So as we think about that, it's, I hope you guys know this, <clears throat> but this is one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. He has already died and ri risen again, and they're seeing him here on this mountain at the end of Matthew's gospel. This is the very last verses, and so this is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And obviously, verse 16, it says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. That's where we're at, is in Galilee, the northern region of Judea. Um, the location, I believe, is an important location and an important detail. Uh, it tells us a little bit of how long after the, after the resurrection this has taken place. For one thing, we remember Jesus died and rose again in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the city, is roughly 70 miles from the region of Galilee. So if they're going to meet Jesus there in Galilee, the disciples had to walk 70 miles. To give you an idea of how long that would take, imagine if you're going to walk from here to Gardner, up at the north entrance of Yellowstone, that's 77 miles. Uh, quite a distance just to walk on the roads, and it would take about a week to accomplish that. So we're at least a week into the resurrection, but I believe even further into it than that, as there are also other post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. The first appearances of Jesus were still in Jerusalem, where he died and rose again. Even, in fact, in Matthew 28, the first 
few verses are at the tomb in Jerusalem where he was buried and he is first seen there. And if you flip over to John 20 really quickly, we can get even more context of some of these first appearances to understand a little bit of how long after the resurrection we're at. So, there in John 20, the first appearance is in verse 19. And it says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So this is the first resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples all together. They're up in a room, uh, afraid of the, of the Jewish leaders, and Jesus appears to them. And it says, in fact, that it was the first day of the week. So this is the very first day he's risen from the grave. The very first time he appears to them is on the first day that he's alive again. And while still in Jerusalem, though, Jesus shows up more times than just this first day. Look down at verse 26. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So eight days after the resurrection, the disciples are still in Jerusalem. And they're there and Jesus appears to them once again and reminds them, peace be with you. So we have at least eight days after the resurrection plus a week to get to Galilee. But even more important than that, there's still one more event that happens before then. John 21 records another appearance of Jesus to his disciples. If you look at verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And just so you know, the Sea of Tiberias is also called the Sea of Galilee. So by this time, the, the disciples have made it back up to Galilee. They've gone back home, and they're there on the sea, and they, they see him there. So a couple more days go past. So we've got the first week in Jerusalem, a week to get to, to Galilee, and a couple days of fishing. And roughly then, as I think about that, and as commentaries help me to think about that, it would probably be safe to estimate 20 to 25 days after the resurrection, Jesus appears to them here in Matthew 28. So jumping back there, we see that Jesus says in Matthew 28, I mean, excuse me, Jesus doesn't say, Matthew wrote this, that when he went to, when the disciples went to Galilee, they went to a mountain which Jesus had directed them. And as I read that, I got to thinking, well, when did he direct them to go to a mountain? That seems kind of like an interesting fact that seems to be overlooked often. And actually, as I was looking at this, there are three times that Jesus directs his disciples to go to a mountain in Galilee. The first, I'll just tell you, is in Matthew 26. So two chapters earlier, Jesus is telling his disciples once more that he's going to die. And in verse 32, Jesus says, but I will go before you and meet you in, in Galilee. And this is the night before he's going to die. And he just says, hey, I'm going to die, but I'll still meet you there in Galilee. And, and so I would, I would guess that he also mentions the mountain because of the importance of this meeting and that Matthew's writing about it. It would be safe to assume, okay, we know that this is where he mentions it. Further, Matthew 28 also mentions that they would see him there in Galilee. Verse 7, an angel promises to the women at the tomb that they would see the Lord there in Galilee. And verse 10, Jesus says to the women, 
do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus makes this an intentional meeting. He's promised them he would see them there. He knows that this is going to happen, that he's going to meet them there. He's, he's got a purpose for what he's going to say. This isn't just some random meeting. He's like, oh, hey, we're on a mountain. This seems like a good place to give you the Great Commission. No, he's had this in mind since before he died, that he would give them the Great Commission here on this mountain. So, as the disciples are going to this mountain to meet the Lord, we see that in verse 17, it's, Matthew says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. And I love that Matthew puts this in here. This is, I think, a good note that Matthew adds. The disciples see their Lord, who they've seen before, and they fall down and worship him. They know that this is God in the flesh. Because if it was anyone else but God, this would be blasphemous worship. And Jesus would have denied it if he wasn't God. Um, and that's just a helpful side, side note. I hope you can take away from this that Jesus receives their worship as God. And yet even while he's receiving their worship, Matthew says that some doubted. And it's interesting that he would say that some doubted because as you think about it, it's the 11 disciples. And in fact, even doubting Thomas himself has already seen the Lord and, and probably felt the wounds. And it, it causes me to ask this question, well, why were they doubting? And, and I would actually argue it's not even the disciples that are doubting. I, I believe it's safe to assume that there are more than just the 11 disciples here. Remember, I told you in Matthew, earlier in Matthew 28, the angel promised the women at the tomb that they would see Jesus on, in Galilee. So the women might be here. Along with that, Jesus' ministry was focused in Galilee. He worked up there. He, he ministered mostly up there. Most of his followers then were from that region. Since they're from that region, by this point, it's 20 to 25 days after the resurrection, most people have probably heard Jesus has resurrected and his followers are going to say, we need to go see our Lord again. We need to see our Savior who is risen from the dead. And and Paul himself actually records that there was a, a meeting. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 disciples at once. Now, it, it doesn't say that this happened here on the mountain in Galilee for the Great Commission. And nowhere in the Gospels do you find this account. But Paul mentions it. And based on the fact that some are doubting that the women were promised to see him there and that most of his followers were there, I, I believe it's safe to assume that more came than just the 11. That also helps to help understand why some doubted. Imagine a crowd of 500 people, and you're in the back, and you see Jesus on a, at least what would be a hill for us. It'd be hard to point out, is this really Jesus? I can't quite tell from the back. I'm not super tall, and these other people are blocking my view. Some might have doubted. Or another word that could be used there is hesitated. They're not super sure if they should be worshiping this person who they can't tell if it's Jesus or not. It's hard to see from the back of the crowd, is this really Jesus? And yet, while some doubted, verse 19 says, Jesus came to them. He came and said to them. So some are worshiping, some are doubting, and Jesus approaches them still. He, he's there to give this commission. He's not there to say, hey, I am Jesus, or to get rid of all doubt and bring in just this big worship concert. Really, he's there to give this commission so he goes before them because he wants to talk to them and tell them what he has to say. 
And look at, look at verse 18. This is how Jesus starts the Great Commission. In verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I just love that this is the first thing Jesus says to his disciples. They see him, they're worshiping him, and he doesn't even bother saying, hey guys, good to see you. I know I've been dead for a while and I've been down in Jerusalem, but good to see you. And so he's like, no, all authority is given to me. I have it, it's mine, Jesus says. He doesn't mince words here. He's just gonna say, I have the authority to do this. I have the authority over everything and I'm gonna give you a commission. And so before he sends them out with this commission, Jesus tells the disciples that there's nothing over which he does not have authority. His will and his commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. Jesus starts with a seriousness in this commission. He starts by saying, listen to me and bring others to listen to me as well because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. There's nothing that escapes his authority. There's nothing that escapes his will and his, his command. So as you think about this, know that Jesus isn't kidding about this, about this commission. He's serious. He brings weight to it. Well, what is the command exactly? Look at verse 19. Jesus tells us, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, it's important, I think, to make a note of something that oftentimes this can be misinterpreted. People will say, the first thing you have to do in the Great Commission is go. That that's the first verb. And actually it's not. The only command in this, in this account is make disciples. And, and really it's hard to tell in English, but in, in the actual Greek you can. And by no means am I a Greek scholar. I'm in my second semester of Greek grammar, so I am learning a bit. John's there in Greek grammar. <laughs> But I have learned enough to know what a verb is. Um, <laughs> I, I know what a verb is. It's an action word. <laughs> and, and here we have, in verse 19, there's one imperative verb and there's no other verbs at all. And that imperative verb is make disciples. So please, guys, listen to me. The main point of this passage, the main point of tonight is make disciples. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples here, and that's what he's telling us now is to make disciples. Really, if you don't take anything else away, no, Jesus said make disciples. That's as clear as I can be on this passage. That's what it's about. Remember, I asked you at the beginning, what do you want to do with your life? And really, I asked that because making disciples is the most important thing you can do with your life. There's nothing greater to give your time to. There's nothing greater that will have more impact or do more for people than making disciples. You can help people with social relief and educating them and, I guess, building things for them. Um, but really, what's going to last is their souls. Because we know there are only two things that last from this earth, God's word and people's souls. So no matter what you do in this life, no matter what else you spend your time doing, why not take the one and let it impact the other? Take God's word and put it into people's souls. Make an impact that will last for more than just 100 years. As I was thinking about this, I even remembered that we, we always think about those great athletes or those great scientists. You know, we know of Einstein, we know of Michael Jordan and the presidents and the founding fathers and 
and others like that. And yet, how much longer are we going to remember them? How much longer are they going to have their names remembered? Perhaps for them, a little bit longer than you and me. But really, it's not going to last that long. It's not going to last long at all. But this will. And not for our sake, but for God's sake and his glory do we make disciples. Because they also glorify him with us. I also want you to know, though, this is a command. Jesus says, make disciples. This is something we're called to do, we're commissioned to do. Jesus doesn't stand there and say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and if you've got the time, if it's not too much of a hassle, and, you know, if you really connect with that guy or that gal on a one-to-one basis, maybe you can make a disciple or two in your life. You know, but if not, that's not a huge deal. (laughs) That's not what Jesus says. You can't take this and think, oh, this isn't for me. This is for you. This is for me and you. We make disciples. That's what we're here for. It's called the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. (laughs) And notice also he does say make disciples of all the nations. This, This command is inclusive of everyone in the world. We're called to make disciples of everybody, not just people in Bozeman, not just people in Montana or in the United States. We're called to make disciples of all the nations. And what this means is that wherever you may end up in life, whether you stay here in the valley or go to another part of the world, make disciples. Whether you are in Montana or even someplace like Missouri, you make disciples. Whether you're in the U.S. or Uzbekistan, you make disciples. If you're in Alaska or down south in Alabama, make disciples. If you're in North America or even if you go to North Korea, you make disciples. That's what this says, make disciples. And this has inspired many to go and make disciples throughout the world. I mean, Matt mentioned we have our global outreach conference going on right now. And we're, a lot of people right now are thinking about missions work. They're thinking about what we can do to help the people we send out, how we can pray and support them. And I am just so thankful for the people that do go to other parts of the world to Turkey and other places in Africa and South America and the Middle East and Asia. And it's an amazing thing that we can take this text and know, hey, wherever I go, I can make disciples. And I can even give my life to this task of making disciples in another part of the world. I just want to like, mention that now too. There are people here I know who are thinking about mission work. And this text speaks to you so much to make disciples because this is really what missions work is about is making disciples. But for us who don't think about missions work, guess what? This text is for you. You make disciples where you're at. You, you can't make the case that this command doesn't apply to you even if it is less than the 500, even if it's the only, only the 11 disciples there. You can't make the case that this text doesn't apply to you now. Now I know some of you might be saying, Josh, I don't even know where to start with making disciples. What am I supposed to do? And that's a good question. I'm really glad you asked. Because Jesus tells us how to make a disciple in this text. He doesn't just leave you with, okay, make disciples. Peace. We'll see ya. 
Instead, he, he tells us how. Remember, I told you the only imperative command here is make disciples. But if you're at all like me and you can read English, then you would notice that there are other, other words that look like <laughs> verbs. <laughs> I mean, you see here it says, Jesus says go. He says baptize them. And he says teach them. And you're like, well, aren't those verbs? And I'll answer kind of. <laughs> it's really something called a participle. And a participle is the weirdest thing that I'm still trying to grasp. <laughs> but basically, for our purposes, you can say that what these words, these participles are doing is giving us further description. They're basically an adverb. They're modifying the main verb. It tells us the requirements and the means of making disciples. Really, if you want to know how to make disciples, read the rest of this text. It tells you how to make disciples. So, how do you do it? Well, you go, you baptize them, and you teach them. That's what you do. And I want to take a look at each of these individually so we don't get confused about what that means. First off, the first thing you do to make a disciple is you go. Or a better way to say it might be while you go or as you go. Jesus really is saying, while you're going about in your day-to-day life, in whatever you're doing, make a disciple. Make multiple disciples. This means that we should be making disciples wherever we are in life. If you're in class, make disciples. If you're at work, make disciples. If you're with your family, make disciples. It's, it's such a good thing that this is in here because it really opens it up for everyone. It's like, okay, I can do this. And it's holistic idea of all the time we're making disciples. You don't have to go into vocational ministry. You don't have to set aside all of your time and be like, okay, my full-time job is making disciples. You probably won't get paid for that anyway. But the idea is you can do it wherever you are. You don't have to be a pastor, a church leader, or church staff. This is for all of us, wherever we are in life. We really should be making disciples in our sphere of influence is the idea. Those you interact with, they're the ones you make disciples of. Jesus wants us to engage the world. We don't wait for the world to come to us to make disciples. We are going out to them because we're out in the world already. And really, that's where we go into the second part. As we're out in the world, we're engaging the world. And Jesus says to baptize them. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So once you are engaged in the world, because you're out in the world, you've gone out into the world, you go and baptize your disciples. Now let me start first by saying you don't really have to actually carry out the physical water baptism of your disciples. Um, has anyone seen Nacho Libre? <laughs> there's, there's a scene in Nacho Libre where Nacho walks up to um, his, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's Stephen? It's Stephen apparently. <laughs> Says to Stephen, he's like, I'm concerned about your salvation and stuff. Why haven't you been baptized? And then Nacho goes and fills up a bowl of water, sneaks up behind him and smacks his face in the water and baptizes him. <laughs> um, but for our purposes, you don't have to do that. I really, I, I seriously almost thought about showing that clip tonight, but I thought that might get us off task. 
So just know you don't have to actually baptize physically. You yourself don't have to baptize. But what Jesus means here is what baptism signifies, what it symbolizes. And so we have to understand what does baptism mean? What does it mean to be baptized? So let me just start by saying baptism doesn't save. That's clear in Scripture. Jesus isn't saying here that you save them by baptizing them. Instead, baptism is an outward identification with Christ. It's our public declaration of faith in Christ. And I just want to quickly prove this to you as best I can. So, and I thought the best place to go would be Romans, Romans chapter 6. So if you're, as you should be in Matthew, go over to Romans, which is after all of the Gospels and then after Acts, you have Romans. And in chapter 6, there are a couple of verses where Paul gives us a brief, brief explanation of baptism. And by this point in the letter, Paul has very clearly proven that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Chapters 1 to 5 don't even mention baptism. It's not a question in his mind, are you saved by baptism? The answer is obviously no. And so in chapter 6, when he talks about that, keep that in mind. He, again, isn't saying you're saved by this. But he says in verse 4 of chapter 6, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Really, again, what Paul does is he explains what baptism symbolizes for us, and that's our death and resurrection in Christ. Baptism, as an act, shows us and declares to others that we have died to our sin and that we're now risen with Christ in newness of life. Our old self has died, our sinful self has died. And then we know, but we're also risen with Christ. We have new life with him and in him. And so when we're baptized, we're outwardly professing what has inwardly happened. That inwardly, by grace, through faith, we have died to sin and been made alive with Christ. And that we are now new people in him. So that's what baptism symbolizes. That as, as you're going into the water and coming out, that's what it depicts is dying with Christ and coming up alive with him. And really, that's, that's what Jesus wants to do there in Matthew 28. When he says baptize, he wants us to have people make this public declaration of faith. He points us to the fact that there should be an aspect really of evangelism in our discipleship. After we go out into the world, we have to evangelize to the world. Uh, we, we have to start there with evangelism. We have to start with the gospel. Because if you're going to make a disciple, that person isn't a disciple to start. Otherwise, you wouldn't be making a disciple. And really, the reason he starts with baptism is because baptism is the first act of obedience that a Christian ought to be making. New converts are the ones who get baptized Real, that's what it is. It's like, okay, I've been saved. I want to declare my faith now by, through baptism. And this is just seen throughout the New Testament. All you have to do is read through Acts and you'll see that every time someone responds to the gospel, they are immediately baptized. It's that close of a relationship that it's like, what must I do be to, to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Not because baptism saved, but because that was what a Christian did was got baptized. So, so back in Matthew 28, that's what Jesus says is, have people get baptized because they got saved. 
You know, if you're going to make a disciple, they're going to come to saving faith in Christ once they hear the gospel. Once they hear the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, bearing our sins on the cross and dying so that we might be saved from the wrath of God. Once they put faith in that, they should get baptized. That's why that's the, that's the second step of making disciples. And notice also there in Matthew 28, Jesus says baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First off, just as a side note, name is singular and then there's three, three persons. This is just an extra point to the triune Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. They're all one, but they're all different, three different persons. But also, baptizing someone in the name of someone else symbolizes identifying with them. So we identify with God. We identify with God the Father, with God the Son, and with God the Holy Spirit. One commentator, commentator explained it this way. As it does in many parts of Scripture, the phrase, the name here embodies the fullness of a person, encompassing all that he is, has, and represents. When he is baptized, the believer is identified with everything that God is, has, and represents. Identification with everything God is, has, and represents. That's what we do. Everything about me as a disciple is identified with God. Everything about those new disciples that are baptized is about God. Everything he is. We represent him. We are his ambassadors now as disciples. So baptizing is important because it's that symbol. It, it symbolizes who we are in Christ and who we identify with now. So the first step, while you're going, while you're going in life, and then the next thing you do is you engage the world, you evangelize, you share the gospel to bring people to faith. But it doesn't stop there either. There's a third step to making disciples. And that's in verse 20 of Matthew 28. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. <clears throat> he says to them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that's important that he says observe. He's talking about obedience here, guys. We don't just teach the Bible to someone so, they, so that they can effortly, effortlessly quote from Second Chronicles. We don't just teach someone the Bible so, they, so that they can biblically, biblically explain how human volition relates to God's sovereignty and omnipotence. Those are good things. We should know something about Second Chronicles and we should be able to talk about theological issues. But Jesus says to teach them obedience over theology. We're not after unholy, unsanctified theological geniuses. That's not what we want. Otherwise, we're just going to have these proud, arrogant, stuffed up people who think they know what they're talking about when really they're dead in their sins. We teach them to be obedient to the scriptures. We are teaching disciples the entire word of God, the entire Bible, so that they're obedient to it, not just so they know what it says. Now, someone might try to argue, but Jesus says to teach them all that I commanded, to observe all that I commanded. And I'm like, Well, yeah, he does. He does say all that I have commanded you. But does that mean we should only teach the words in red in the four Gospels? Is that what Jesus is getting at here? He's like, okay, when you make a disciple, just keep it to those red words you open up to in your Bible. Just keep it to the Gospels. No, that's not what he says. The Gospels are a great place to start. 
Imagine just your new disciple, you go through John with them and what they'll learn about who God is and what Christ has done for them. That's a great book to go through or any of the other gospels as well. We show them Jesus and many things he taught during his earthly ministry. And I don't know of a, a better place to start, but there's no reason to think we shouldn't teach the rest of the Bible. For one thing, who is the ultimate author of the Bible? God is. And who is Jesus? Well, he's God. So who commanded everything in the Bible? Well, Jesus did. Jesus is not in disagreement with any part of the scriptures. They're all his words. Along with that, what did Jesus teach that the rest of the Bible didn't teach? Or what did Jesus teach that contradicted with the rest of the Bible? All I have to do is think about it for a quick second. Even just think about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we've been studying it in our community groups together. And what we see there is that Jesus teaches everything. Jesus taught the correct interpretation of the law. So there we could say he taught the Old Testament. He teaches other parts of the Old Testament throughout his ministry because he had the Old Testament to quote. That's what his scriptures were. Along with that, how many times when you're going through the rest of the New Testament are you going back to something Jesus said in the Gospels, even the Sermon on the Mount? I remember a few years ago I was studying through James and I felt like every verse I was going back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, wow, Jesus taught this and James is teaching this. This is incredible. The entire Bible is in complete agreement, guys. What Jesus taught is what the Bible teaches. What you have here is, in fact, everything Jesus commanded. So we teach that to them. We teach the entire word of God. Further, I just want to add that what the disciples taught became the New Testament because of it came from Jesus. I remember Paul in Acts 20 said that he taught the Ephesian elders the whole counsel of God. It doesn't say, I've taught you the whole counsel of the words in red in my New Testament. That's not what he taught. Instead, he taught them everything because it's all important. Everything in here is important. And as we're learning it, we should be teaching it. I want to just show you one other verse that mentions teaching and discipleship. And I want to show you it because I think it's a verse you can't not look at. So jump over to 2 Timothy. And we're looking at verse two, or chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, 2. It's such a good verse. I hope most of you know this. If you don't, memorize it because it pretty much sums up discipleship in one easy verse. So Paul, Paul here is writing to Timothy his last, one of his last letters, and he encourages him with these words in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, In what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will, be able, who will be able to teach others also. That is such a clear verse. I don't really have much to add to that. What Timothy had learned, he was to teach to others. That's pretty easy understanding to get. So in our discipleship, teach others what you've already learned. You should be learning the scriptures so you teach them to those who are learning the scriptures from you. And this kind of teaching shouldn't ever stop. It should go on and on and on and on. I mean, look at this verse as well. Another thing you have to mention when you look at 2 Timothy 2 too is how many generations do you see here of Christians teaching Christians? Well, if you don't see it right away, let me just first by saying, well, the first one's Paul. It says, in what you have heard from me, Paul, 
The second person is Timothy and what you have heard from me. So that's two generations. What Timothy had heard in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, a third generation. So at least three. Paul's a spiritual great-grandpa. And then he says, who will be able to teach others also, that fourth generation there. So teaching men to teach men or teaching women to teach women. It goes on, it continues on. You teach and you teach and you teach. Ultimately, too, all of this teaching comes from Jesus. So when we are doing this, we are obedient to Jesus' commands to teach them all that I have commanded you. And I want to add something else about teaching as well. When, de- when Jesus tells us to teach others to obey, this isn't formal teaching and preaching he's talking about. This isn't something reserved only for the gifted teachers. If you have a spiritual gift of teaching and preaching, that's not who it's reserved for. Rather, because this text is for every Christian, this text is for every Christian. That means every Christian teaches other Christians. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to teach the Bible. You don't have to know how to parse verbs and have a better definition of a participle than I do. What you do need to do is study the Bible and then teach it to others. That's what we're called to do. So study the Bible, but then don't keep it to yourself. Teach others also. Well, let's go back to Matthew 28. And as we're going back, let me just sum up what Jesus says here. He's told us how to make disciples. He says, first, this is while you're going in life, you make a disciple. And then you share the gospel, bring someone to faith so that they publicly declare their faith and identify with God. And then you teach them to be obedient to the scriptures. You teach them to be a submissive, humble follower of Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking right now, making disciples isn't easy, Josh. It's a big task, and it's a hard job, and I don't know I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm not mature enough. I've only been a Christian for like six months. And I'm only in college too. How am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to fill this out? Well, I do get where you're coming from to an extent. I've had those thoughts in the past. I, there were times when I was like, I don't know enough. I'm, I'm 19 years old. Who am I supposed to teach right now? But First, let me encourage you by saying that perfect disciple-making isn't the, res- isn't the expectation here. Obedience and faithfulness is. Obedience and faithfulness is all you have to do. It's like, okay, I'm going to do what you've called me to. If that means I'm going to share the gospel and share the gospel and share the gospel and get s- that slammed in my face time and again, I'm going to do it until I see someone come to faith. And then I'm going to take that guy, I'm going to take him through John. Then I'm going to take him through Matthew and then Mark and then Luke. And then we're going to go to Romans then Ephesians, and then maybe we'll dabble in Genesis. All you have to do is be faithful, be obedient to it. And further, Jesus knew that this would be hard. He knew this would be a challenging task. Look at the end of chapter, or excuse me, verse 20, there at the the end. Jesus gives us an excellent promise Because of this command, he says, there's second half of the verse, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that such a great promise, guys? 
Doesn't that comfort you as you hear, I'm supposed to see someone come to faith and then teach him to be obedient? I can't control a guy. I can't change his heart. But Jesus promises, I'll be with you. I'm going to help you in this work. What a marvelous, marvelous truth Jesus promises to be with us. And, and when he says always, the actual rendering could be all the days. Every day, Jesus is with us. Every day, he's with us in this work. This is all-encompassing, and this brings to mind the union with Christ we have. That you and I aren't alone in this job. I don't have to go out and make a disciple knowing it's all on me. Because I know it's not, because Jesus is with me. I just I want to go to one other passage to think more about this Jesus with us and how he helps us in this work. Go over to John 15 with me. And we'll be wrapping up here in just a minute with John 15. And we're looking at verses 4 and 5. He's in the upper room with his disciples right now and he's just going to comfort them. And in John 15, verse 4, Jesus says this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That reminds us of our dependence on Christ. That's what that verse verse brings in. If you think you can do this on your own, this should humble you as you remember, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But also, how great it is that Jesus is apart from me, you can do nothing, but I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. He abides in us and we abide in him. And, and through that, fruit is born in this. Know that it doesn't depend on you, but it depends on Christ who works through your faithfulness and your obedience. And so we really should be faithful to the task we're called to. Really, it's not even a question of whether or not you should make a disciple. That's already been answered. You should. The question is, are you obedient? Are you going to be obedient to what Christ has said? And are you going to trust in the promise that he gives us? This is work that matters. This is work that is worthwhile and we will have an impact far longer than any other work we will do in this life. And to that end, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us such timeless truth to apply to our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would be serious about this great commission. God, this is a command you have given us and it's something that we are supposed to do obediently. God, would we be investing our lives in this work? And when we know that this is a worthwhile task that you have commissioned us for that lasts into eternity. And Lord, we know we cannot do it apart from your help and your grace in our lives. And so we thank you that you've promised to be with us. So Lord, may we throw off our excuses that hinder us from carrying this out. Lord, would you cause us to be obedient to this? And may you help us to trust you more and more each and every day in this work as we seek to be faithful disciple makers wherever we go in life. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.